Welcome to Self-Compassionate Professor, a podcast helping academics and former academics to find wellness, meaning, purpose, and freedom in life and career. I'm Danielle Delamar. Glad you're here. Hello. Welcome to episode 36 with Dr. Eric James Stevens. This episode is going to stir in you your basic human need to feel more connected. If you're still in academia and, you know, maybe you're feeling kind of heavy, like I can't do this anymore, this COVID thing and feeling so disconnected from your students and so disconnected from your colleagues, this episode is going to give you a little strength, I think. Um, It's going to motivate you to make more space in your day for conversations with other people. It's going to help you to feel more spontaneous about just relaxing into a conversation, right? Because so many of us are feeling so much pressure to get our work done and move on with the next thing that we're not willing to just rest in a conversation with another person and feel that connection with that other person. You relax into a five-minute conversation with your seven-year-old. Or maybe you let things flow a little bit more when you're teaching your classes, right? You're not over-preparing. You're not scripting everything, but you're letting you and your students have more meaningful conversations. It's about sort of letting this connection with your friends and your family and your students restore you and refuel you, um, particularly if you're starting to feel burned out, particularly if you're starting to feel, or maybe not starting, but particularly if you're feeling immense pressure to do work under really harsh circumstances. And whether those circumstances are the circumstances that Eric is talking about in this episode, where it's this space between having left academia and then trying to figure out what your new place in industry is. Or maybe it is the space of just this nagging feeling that you want to leave academia. It's not working for you anymore. And your heart is heavy. And you need to change the way you're doing your career. Having conversations with people in this creative, co-constructing, meaningful, loving way is absolutely going to restore you. So something about this conversation with Eric got me really, really excited. And like I said, I think that it's that basic need to connect to other people. And so I think that that basic human element within me really got sparked in this conversation with Eric. And um, as a result, I forgot to ask him how people could find him. (laughs) So because I forgot that, I will tell you now that if you want to get in touch with Dr. Eric Stevens, you should look for him on LinkedIn. Um, You can type in Eric 
James Stevens with a PH. And he's really encouraging you, particularly, you know, if you're an academic who has left academia or you're planning on leaving and you're not comfortable with LinkedIn yet, he's really encouraging you to get in touch with him, right? If you're intimidated, he's like, just connect with me. I'll, I'll be one of your first connections, right? Um, I will say that this interview was had at a time that he did not have a full-time job, but he was in the midst of looking for a full-time job. And so at this point, I will tell you that he is a junior business analyst, which is super exciting. And I know there were a ton of people on uh, LinkedIn. I'm connected to Eric and um, there are a ton of people on LinkedIn that were so excited for his news when he broke the news not too long ago that he has this new full-time job in industry. But that also does not mean he's leaving his work uh, behind with Change Higher Ed and Higher hi- Higher Ed. Um, this this work you'll hear more about in the episode. So I will go ahead and introduce you to Dr. Eric James Stevens now. Thank you for joining us today. Today I am talking to Dr. Eric James Stevens. He is the founder of Higher Higher Ed and Change Higher Ed. Eric, how are you? Hi, Danielle. Um, I'm doing pretty well so far today, um, and I'm really happy to be here. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. I'm so glad you're here, too. Uh, So what brought you to academia to begin with? Why why the PhD, and why did you leave? I think, I think for me, um, I, I always loved learning stuff, and I and I still do. I really enjoy figuring out how something works, how net, networks or systems work, um, so that I can, I don't know, figure it out better and learn how to navigate it better. And I've been doing it ever since I was a kid. And it just kind of seemed like this natural progression that I think a lot of people who go into academia kind of feel um, of like this pull towards learning. Um, I don't think it was, I was always going to be a professor or do like the academic route necessarily. I think that came much more like when I was in my undergraduate, I was a business major with a psychology minor and I was slinging phones for a cell phone company there in town and I was doing really well. Um, and really enjoying myself, you know, I like was young and had money and no responsibilities. Um, <laughs> but then I, uh, I met my now wife who just kind of sat down she's like, you know, you're, you're taking a lot longer to finish school than you need to, even though you're, you're making money now, you're, um, uh, like you're, there's the opportunity cost of what you might be doing. And so, um, that's when I just kind of realized that I needed to, to really step up my game academically. Uh, around that same time, I had a mentor who said that, you know, you should be teaching people how to to use language. And so um, that's when I decided hmm. to, um, I, had, I had a job at the writing center at the time and just like learning what to do with, with what I was able to learn and have learned and, and being able to help other people. 
And then I got into um, my master's degree at the same time as my wife did. She had been there for a year. Uh, we were both at Utah State University. And my first semester, I looked at my reading list and then I looked at her reading list. And I mean, mine was all about Shakespeare and I had read Shakespeare before and uh, I didn't really want to read Shakespeare again. And her reading list <laughs> was books that were called um, Capitalism and Schizophrenia and Cyber Marxism. Um, and it were these these really cool books that were using all the same um, theorists that I was using in my literature courses, but they were applying them to real world situations. And that's when I shifted this idea from going into English to going into rhetoric. And rhetoric is the, the art of communication and persuasion using um, all available means to be persuasive and to, to talk to your audience. And I really fell in love with it and decided to get my doctorate degree um, in rhetoric which is where I got it from Clemson University. And, and the whole time I, I went into education wanting to teach, wanting to learn. But in my, my graduate school experience, I, where I was actually in front of a class and teaching, I felt this pull away from it because I had to do all of the things that I needed to do in order to be able to teach. Like I needed to get my doctorate degree and I needed to publish and get tenure and all these things, which took away from the focus that of why I was there, which was teaching students. And I remember in the, one of my, the first interviews that I had after I graduated in 2018 with uh, where my, my previous job was, the department chair asked me what I thought my greatest accomplishment. And I said, you know, I'd done really well in graduate school. I'd won awards and one funding and all that kind of stuff. But the, the thing I'm most proud of in this moment is that I've rediscovered why I got here in the first place, which was to teach students. Like I love teaching students. Um, and I think it was, and I think that's, that was what's kind of hard for me after I, after I graduated and got my job at the university where I did in Washington was that I, I had simultaneously discovered this, this passion for teaching and then realize that that others around me had let that fire distinguish themselves. Like I think mm. that they knew they were there for students abstractly, but when it came down to what do I need to do day to day, my priority is is my research or my own personal work that I'm doing, and that's fine to do and to have. But at what cost is that to students? Um, from there, I was, um, kind of kicked around in a couple different, um, areas at that university. I focused primarily on, in addition to teaching writing and, um, I got into, um, developmental writing and academic coaching, which was what, which, what I was doing and what I fell in love with. And then like you asked what happened for me to, um, like the scenario, like, why did I leave academia? For me, it was, it was. I was compelled to leave. Like I think a lot of people are in this moment with COVID um, because of some of the, the work that I had been doing and because of the circles that I was aware of and, and running with in my previous university, I, I knew in advance um, this past spring that I was going to be laid off um, at the time. Um, and so I, I kind of, I, I, I was facing that void and that pit 
of this idea of um, academic, like we're not here for you anymore. Um, there isn't a place for you here. And it was hard to see that all of these jobs that I was trying to apply to were just disappearing as COVID kept growing and growing and growing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just kept seeing these jobs disappear and disappear. And at the time um, when all of this was happening, our lease was up and we had to, we had to move. My wife was eight and a half months pregnant at the time. Oh, um, wow. And, and our landlord couldn't see the situation that was happening. And we were asking for like a two month extension just to see what happens with COVID and they're like, no, peace out. Um, and luckily, we were able to find a landlord who would like gave us a short term lease for two months. But we we moved probably about fifty percent of our stuff into storage, and then moved into a little house uh, for about six to eight weeks, I think. And we had a baby, a home birth. My wife is an amazing woman, and um, and we had this brand new baby, and all of a sudden, we were trying to figure out what to do, and. We found out that her department was going to be teaching online. And so we said, okay, we don't really have any reason to stay here anymore. So we put all of our stuff into storage thinking, you know, like there's an opportunity for us to come back, which there still may be. Um, But we packed up all of our stuff and put our kids on a plane with my wife and my mother-in-law. And they flew to Maryland when, while I drove our cars and a couple other things to Maryland where my parents live. And so that's where we are right now. And, and during that move and that process, my wife also found out that she had been laid off from her position um, at the oh, university. Wow. And so we arrived and um, like I'm living in my, you know, our parents' basement, the the place where I do a lot of the work that I do is my childhood, my <laughs> it's my childhood bedroom turned storage unit turned makeshift office. And so I'm, I'm here, like literally like in my, in my roots, trying to figure out what to do next um, while I'm seeing everything that's kind of crumbling around with higher education. Uh, a couple of weeks or a couple of months ago now, the CEO of Higher Ed Jobs, uh, John Ickenberry, I believe his name is, he just said that um, this time last year, there's been a 58% reduction in jobs in higher, ed- in higher education. And the Chronicle of Higher Education, they just came out this past week and said that to this point last year, over 337,000 jobs have been lost in higher education. And that's huge. And that's a lot. And I knew that there were people just like me facing this, this crumbling void um, and didn't know what to do. And I, I, like, I, I was trying to reach out to my academic network, hoping that they would be there and, and support me, but they, they weren't there. And I used to blame them for that. But now, you know, I mean, there's a lot of things that were going on in people's lives with COVID and people's parents were getting sick. And, you know, my getting laid off is just another unfortunate thing that's happening. Um, and so what I wanted to do was create, create a community for people who are going through this moment um, to find solidarity so that they can find people to to talk with um, who are going through the same the same hurt right now um, but also in a way to reestablish their own value as people and their own professional identity that's something that I've had to do and learning that my that I do have value and that the, this crumbling market is not a reflection of me and who I am 
And I want other people to kind of learn that too. And along the way, I'm hoping that people can learn skills like with some of the people that I bring on to my weekly episode that I do now. Um, but all of this really, it started um, with this the, this desire to to help people. Like at first it was helping students and then it was it was doing some really heavy research into social justice research and then getting back into to teaching students and helping students. And now it's um, like, I'm, I'm seeing for the first time um, a group of people that, that I can advocate for and be a part of. Um, and that's something that I, that I've really struggled with as someone who, who has all the identities that I have and every privilege that I do have. Um, I have to, I have to walk and understand how I can do my advocacy and in what way I can best be an advocate. And, and I think that, that for me, this is, this is what that is. Um, it's kind of stepping aside and, and saying, Hey, I'm not an expert in these things, but I know people who are, and I can build a platform so that those people can speak and, and just find that solidarity. Okay. I am really struck by this sort of thread that's been running through your story. Um, I, I, I noticed that you had said there isn't a place for you anymore. And um, you had talked about, you know, the university laying you off as well as your wife, um, the landlord that you all were, wh whose home you all, all were living in wouldn't let you stay. Um, that you talked about, you know, faculty um, not being there for students in concrete ways. And um, then when all this stuff hit, you talked about how your academic network wasn't there for you either. And um, I just, I find that so, I find it so lovely then that you turn around and say, but I've been able to find sort of my people, um, people that I can advocate for, people that I can lean on. And a lot of us, when we're in these kind of situations, we tend to isolate. I mean, that's a pretty typical response. And you haven't isolated. All of these times that people haven't been there in the ways that that they should be in the ways that you see them needing to be. And, and you still show up for people who are willing to give you a place at the table. Um, I find that really, really interesting. Where did you find sort of the strength or, or, or the idea to go there in this really difficult time? Um, first, thank you for that observation. Um, yeah. Because for me, I've, it's, it's hard for me often to not feel isolated and to not, to not feel like I'm alone and trying to navigate these things, even though I have a, a fantastic support system in my parents' um, home and my wife is, is amazingly supportive and she's going through her own um, grieving process as well, losing her job, you know, while 
caring for a baby and, and taking on the bulk of those responsibilities. Um, it's, and even now that I have these, these weekly panels and talking with some amazing people um, and people like you, it's still hard to not feel isolated. Um, and I think for me, I think that kind of connects to, to the, to the reason and to the drive that I have to do these things. When, when I was in graduate school, I had the opportunity to attend uh, the summer session um, of the European graduate school in the Swiss Alps in Sasfe. <clears throat> and during that time, I, I got to take, I just, I got to study with some of the world's leading philosophers while we hung out in the Alps. It was one of the coolest experiences I've ever had. And also it was one of the most, yeah, just bizarre thinking about it, to be honest. But anyway, mm. um, that's when I was first really introduced to the concept of ethics. Um, and it was the first time that I had had the language to really process the way that I felt about the world. Um, and I was introduced first to um, the philosopher Emmanuel Levinas. Um, and he, he came up with this concept that this uh, Jacques Derrida called um, the ethics of ethics. For, and when it comes to philosophy, there there's like epistemology, like the creation of knowledge. There's ontology, which is which is being, and a lot of philosophers they talk about the nature of being or the nature of knowledge and and which comes first and and how do we arrive there. Um, for Levinas, it was ethics that came before anything else. He said that before we are even called into being and before we have knowledge we um we are in fact called into being by the other when we um and for levinas it was when when we see the other's face um we are we are pulled into existence to help them um and that is that is why we exist and and this is coming from someone who was writing from nazi concentration camps well every other philosopher was trying to figure out how could something horrible so happen, um, like how something so horrible could happen, like the Holocaust. He was, he was sitting in a concentration camp trying to figure out why something this horrible didn't happen sooner. Um, and that's what he came up with was this, this beautiful philosophy that we are pulled into existence so that we can help each other because we see the face of the other. And then as I, as I continued to learn, I, I came across um, the Italian feminist philosopher, Adriana Cavarero, who really adapted and kind of built off of, in my opinion, Levinas's work, but rather for her, um, she talked about it's the voice of the other. Um, you can see a picture and a picture doesn't really do anything, but when you hear a voice, there, there is something that is reverberating from within me that is being digitally coded and now is being put into the speakers of your ears and, and your listeners' ears, right? Those, those are physical vibrations. And so we, we, are, we are pulled into, into being because we are, we are physically pulled because we hear the voice of the other. And 
that other person is always unrepeatable and unique. Mm-hmm. Um, and whenever we approach a situation, we, we need to, we need to be there um, to, to help this, the other person. And so Levinas, he, he goes on with this idea and he says that when you are faced with this knowledge that you are here to help other people, what happens is you, you, you face the idea of horror. And for him, uh, the, the way that it was illustrated to me by uh, Diane Davis, who works at UT Austin, she used the example of the ending of the movie Schindler's List, where mm-hmm. Liam Neeson's character, he's, he's faced with this, this crowd of people who he has helped live. Um, or to live and to survive the Holocaust. And he looks down at his ring, his wedding ring, and he breaks down crying. And he says, what more could I have done? Like being faced with everything he has accomplished and everybody he has helped, he said, I could have done more. And so he breaks down and saying like, um, like how much is my ring worth? Is it worth two lives? Like could I have saved three lives because I held on to this sentimental token um and this is what drives me as someone who now identifies as an ethics scholar um i believe that i've been that i that i'm pulled into being in order to help people um especially given the privileges that i have of being white psi male um, straight, Christian raised, um, middle class. Like, I mean, almost every privilege you can think of, I embody. Um, and I'm, as someone who studies social justice and identity politics, I have to ask myself, what is my role in all of this? And like, like what can I do to help people? And so it, it has become this thing of like, I know I, 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 I can't, simultaneously acknowledge that other people are experiencing what I am experiencing and then do, do nothing. Um, it's, it's just not something that I, I can do because one, like, and this is what like I talk about, like now I have the language to talk about because I believe that I, that I am, that, that I, I do exist and that each of us exists so that we can help each other. Um, cause, and, and if, if we're not, if that's not the reason why we're here, I, I really don't know what it is. And for me, this is how I manifest me wanting to help other people. Um, and it might be different for others. And, and you know what it is, but whatever it is, I just, I hope that people, people are doing it and doing it consciously. Um, and that's what I want to do is kind of build this space for people to, to express that, um, to give people the opportunity to show care um, in ways that they, they may not have realized that they could. Wow. That's, that's absolutely beautiful. What a, what a lovely explanation. Um, and I, I guess I'm really struck by the, I can't not do it. Um, especially because I know how easy it is to get down on yourself and focus just on you, 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 when you're going through a really difficult time. Um, but let, let me ask you, I have other questions to ask too, but 
I want to ask about these weekly conversations you have, this episode, this weekly episode you have. Will you talk a little bit about that and what it looks like and how it works to do this sort of supportive ethical work that you're trying to do in the world? Um, yeah, I think... Yeah, so it started like this this whole this whole event and everything started in in June um where I was like, "Hey, um academics who are not on LinkedIn, um who which is pretty much all of them, right? Like here like you <laughs> should be on LinkedIn. Like come to LinkedIn and support your your fellow academics who are losing their jobs because I don't know, you might be one of the upcoming next wave of 300,000 people who lose their jobs. Mm-hmm. Um so like you might need this network yourself." Um and it was really, honestly, this desperate plea, like in June, to connect for an hour, um, and then uh, Black Lives Matter erupted, and I and I was like, okay, I like, what can I do now that I've kind of built this platform a little bit to to support um, what is happening? Um, and so I I put down my head and was like, okay, like, what do I, what do I want to be able to do if I have a platform? Because um, that's that's what like I I don't want to be build a platform for me to speak. Um, I want to build a platform to let other people speak. Um, and so I, I figured out like, you know, what, what do I need to do to do that? And it turned into in August, it was a, a two day event. I had 50 speakers. Um, I had nine live streamed panels and 19 workshops that were all for academics and teachers and researchers from K through 16 um, to, to come and learn how to translate their value into, into something else. And, and what emerged from that, um, a couple things, one of them was just this stark realization because I had started everything was to find a job. Um, and then just this, this, this epiphany that I don't belong in higher education anymore. Um, mm-hmm. I tried changing as a student, as a graduate student, as a faculty member, and as a staff member. And it is, is a slow-moving monolith. Mm-hmm. Um, and if there's anything that I wanted to do to impact higher education, I would, I would have to do it from outside of it. And that's something that I could weirdly oddly enough do from my parents basement behind a fancy looking microphone that's really the cheapest one i got on amazon Mm -hmm. um and and so now i like and so one of the other things that happened like these these two threads of discussions emerged of the hashtag higher higher ed so let's let's work on helping academics translate their value and then the other thing that had emerged is change higher ed and, and that has like, I've been able to bring in people and I've been connected to amazing people who understand that if there is ever a time to change higher education, it is during COVID. Um, and mm-hmm. if we don't change things during COVID, then everything that we cannot stand about higher education kind of becomes our fault. Um, like we, we have to take accountability for the fact that we didn't do anything to change it. Like all these, these um, embedded um, institutional practices that are sexist 
and racist and all these other things, that's on us if we don't change them now. And so I want, and I want to be able to give voice to people to be able to do that. And so now I've started, I think I'm six or seven weeks into these weekly episodes where I, it's just this, it's a live event. It's, um, it's not designed to, to be monetized or to make money. Um, it's, it's a way for people to come together and to learn with each other and to, to be a community with each other because what COVID has done is to the economy. And when it comes to higher education, we have never, ever before seen such a large, educated, passionate group of people who are, who are this, this, who are founded like in, in altruism, right? They want to help other people. They're hitting the market all at the same time. And and they don't know how to translate their value because everything they've done um, is valued in a, in a very backwards way in academia. And outside of academia, people don't know what to do with someone like that. Um, they, don't, they, don't, they, they know that someone with a PhD has value. They know someone who has 15 years in student affairs has value, but they don't know how it translates. And it's up to the job seeker, the academic, the student affairs professional, to translate that value, to go into a situation and expecting your value to carry worth um, or your PhD to carry the worth for you um, is one of the reasons why people don't want to hire academics um, is because it can be kind of like, it's an arrogant thing to do. And so um, like being able to, to bring people together to, to have a common language and a common understanding of, of what they can do to translate that value for industry jobs. Okay. Um, I want to then know, because you said really um, emphatically, maybe that's the word I'm looking for, that this was not a platform for you to speak. It was a platform for others to speak. And so I want to know why, to what extent are you speaking and why is it not a platform for you to also speak? Could you say, could you say those one more time for me just so I can process them? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you had just said, you know, I, I brought this together, this, this platform together for other people to speak, not for me to speak. And I just wondered, have you started to include your own voice or do you still keep your own voice out of it? Uh, to what extent? Um, why is it important for you to do that? I, be I believe that it is impossible for someone who builds a platform to not speak while they, while they build it. Um, the way they choose to build the platform, whether that's on Facebook, on LinkedIn, or a soapbox outside your house, is speaking something. Um whether or not you blur your background or whether or not like what, I mean, what I wear when I get on the, um, on the camera is speaking something who I invite, um, and who says yes is saying something. And so I'm understanding that, that 
it is impossible for me to not speak. And even when I when I'm framing questions, and the perspective from which I'm I'm asking those questions is something that um, doesn't necessarily need to be spoken, but it definitely speaks. And for me, it came to I I had this decision. I could put a whole lot of effort into calling myself a thought leader. Um, or I could put all of my effort into helping other people become thought leaders, um, helping other people articulate that value. And eventually, if enough people start listening to those people, then they look at the person who's calling them a thought leader and say, we would like to hear from that person as well. And when I am in those moments, like I am right now, um, I think the the thing for me to do is to share my story. Um, and I, I think that I'm, I guess, fortunate in the silver lining sense of the word that I have this story and I'm able to talk about my story in a way that it resonates with other people. And I think that the reason that my story resonates with other people right now is because they're either one of the 337,000 people who have been laid off and they see themselves in my story or they they look about they look around what's happening and they see that might be me. Well, I have to live with my parents. What what do I need to do? Am I going to have to pack up all of my things into storage? Um and so for me it, to to build a platform um, is to is to is to speak and the thing that I want to speak while I build that platform is my authentic story because I I don't know how else I can do it um, other than from that perspective because as I mentioned before I embody all of these privileges and let's be honest I mean we we don't really need another white guy spouting off advice about things. <laughs> um, what what we need are more white guys doing work um, and promoting other people. Um, and and for me, and you know, it's it's literally it means to each is, is their own. I mean, that's the the hard thing about ethics um, is that it can become a very personal thing. Um, and I, I have found that that the, I don't know, lack of a better word, extreme that I've taken my ethics to can kind of deter some people away from from acting. And I think that that's kind of approaching that idea of, of horror um, to, to see someone helping other people um, in a way that I believe is genuine and, and passionate. Um, and then we just can't help but compare ourselves to each other. Um, and so I think that people cope with that in different ways. Um, and what I hope that it does is that it inspires people to do their own helping and to build their their own platform to help build up other people. And so I think that that I mean that's I mean that's the reason why I one of the reasons why I want to help help build this platform is, is so that, so that others can speak while acknowledging that I am also doing some speaking 
And as long as that speaking is coming from a place of genuine ethical desire to do good, um, then I, I think that that is what resonates. And when I, and I choose that word resonates very intentionally, um, going back to with Adriana Cavarero, that, that our voice reverberates, it, it literally it resonates that it, that is a physical action to resonate with something. And I, and I hope that my story physically resonates with others so that they can be compelled to share their own stories, um, in a, um, in a way that's not really about self-promotion that's, that's genuine. Um, because I think that's what we need right now is just genuine, authentic connections with people. I am thinking about the first time I talked to you via zoom. And as soon as I saw you, I was like, Oh, you're in your basement too. <clears throat> Cause I, um, saw sort of the storage behind you and you had said to me yeah i i don't know if you had said you considered a green screen or if somebody had given you advice to do a green screen or something but the green screen thing came up and you had said but i'm not gonna do that because people need to see me in my real environment and this is actually really what's happening to me right now um and so when you talk about authenticity and the importance of, you know, just showing people the reality that is your life right now. Um, I thought that that was just, um, I don't know, a perfect illustration of that. Do you have other um, things that you do intentionally um, that are like that? that that communicate that this is in fact the difficult space you're in right now um if not that's fine i just wondered if there are other things you can think of um yeah i think one of the things that i do intentionally is that that i share my story with people that i that i come and and um and and i i have actively sought out to share my story and so I think that's that's something that I've done um, to to kind of amplify that that's what's going on that this is the the thing that is happening. I think one of the, the the most prevalent things that I'm you know just thinking back to all the organizing and like go like staying up until crazy hours creating content. Um, I like I created over a hundred promotional flyers and announcements. Like there's this entire social media blitz as I was planning all of these different things and creating all of this different content, what inevitably happened, I mean, was confusion with times. I was juggling 50 speakers from six different countries and trying to coordinate an event with all of these moving parts. And what happened was I was just constantly making mistakes in my flyers. Um, and so the thing that I have done intentionally to show like the authentic, like this is me and just kind of like I'm doing this as I go and as much as I can, um, as I just kind of embrace those mistakes, I, I just own it. And I say, Oh, you know what? Like, here's just, I mean, chalking this up to me, to me trying to figure this out. I mean, even like, I think it was two weeks ago. I not, I, for, I forgot or yeah, like played with the settings for my YouTube 
um, casting part. And in the middle of this episode, um, or like right as the episode is beginning, I was like, oh man, it's not working. I was like, all right, panelists, I'll be right back. And so I exited the the program thinking it would just close out the live feed. And then I like fixed the setting, but didn't really fix it and got frustrated. And I jumped back on and I realized that the session was still going and that they were still being broadcast live and, and having fun. And so I was like, oh, well. And so I just like, I just owned it. And and then as, um, as I had to repost it because it didn't end up going onto YouTube. And I was like, hey, this is the funny thing that happened. Um, like, and, you know, like kind of like post about what you learned from this episode. I learned to check my settings and I was just like dying when I watched the portion of when I left the camera. I just, I didn't edit it out. Um, I left it in. Um, I don't do a whole lot of post-production. Actually, I don't do any post-production with the stuff that I put out there um, in, a, in an intentional way um, to kind of show that authenticity. Like, if, I mean, I, I make mistakes um, and I let people see them and I um, hope people learn from them. This is the stuff that you're doing is so hard. Um, my personal experience uh, around just creating a platform is that, you know, when I started this, when I first, when I created my first episode in January, I had what Brene Brown calls a, a vulnerability hangover that would not go away. Like it felt, I felt sick to my stomach. I felt so scared. I was like, what am I even doing? I didn't advertise it for a month because I didn't want anyone to see or to hear it. I was just very, very scared about what it was going to be or, or how people were going to take it and what it was going to say about me. And I, I, I just had so many fears. And every episode I put out for the first, I don't know, 15 I felt that, that, oh my God, what have I done? Oh my God. Uh, uh, uh. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. still um, feel that not to the same, not with the same intensity, but I still feel that. And I even feel that when I post on LinkedIn. Um, but the things that I'm posting on LinkedIn are things that are really, really important to me, right? I talk about self-compassion and drawing on self-compassion to create a career. And, you know, a lot of people can see that as really squishy stuff, um, especially when you think about, like, all of the scientists that follow me. And, and I, I, I'm just, um, uh, it's striking me that when you say you want to help people to build a platform of their own, how necessary that is, because so many of us are too scared to even start. Yeah, it was, it was scary. Um, I remember when, yeah, I, I can absolutely relate to this. Um, and I did it in the way of rather than accumulating all of this content and, um, and being scared about putting it out. Um, I was just panicking and just being scared and saying like, and just kind of like live posting about it and saying like, all right, this is what I'm going to do to channel this thing. And um, <laughs> it was, I, I think, yeah, it was scary. I remember, so I, you know, it was like, I was designing this conference and, you know, how do conferences start in academia? They have a, a cool, you know, conference presentation, like opening discussion, but it's always over a, in a gigantic auditorium where people are eating breakfast and they can't ever hear you or anything. And I was like, let's make it better. Let's grab a drink and do an ask me anything. And I remember 
the the night before so it was august 5th and it was the the event was the sixth and the seventh and i did that my ama and i felt so stupid mm-hmm. um i felt so dumb talking into a microphone and not having any reciprocation of anything um and that's a hard thing to do and i was doing it live and i was like i was thinking as i was doing i was like what the hell am i doing doing this and i messaged my 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 friend um who was helping me through this i met through linkedin raksha um and i was like raksha i like i feel like i feel like crap like i don't know if this is going to work um, and little did I know that that Raksha and this, the other woman who helped me, Sammy Waka Herrera, um, they um, they were having this on like this side conversation about like, oh my gosh, is this actually gonna work? Is this gonna happen? And thankfully, they didn't tell me that until after the event was over. <laughs> um, but it wasn't until the event had like I'd finished my last event. I had I was moderating four panels. Um, every hour, every other hour, uh, for two days. And, um, and I, (laughs) I was exhausted, but I felt fantastic. And it was like, I had just finished one of the best teaching days of my life. Wow. And once I had put it out there, um, I was just elated. I was so excited because I felt like I had found, my vocation and like in, in the true sense of the word of like your, your passion and your calling into something and realizing that, um, like, I mean, it's like every time I sit down, sit down before I do a cast now, um, on Wednesdays, I think to myself, I don't know if this means anything. Like I, I just don't know. Um, but then I get a message from someone who, who told me that she was watching one of the videos and it brought her to tears because she was able to relate to the things that I was saying. Um, and that means a lot to me um, as someone who is, who is feeling like I'm sitting in darkness and talking into darkness um, to know that, that I'm not. Um, wow. I think that's what's really giving me this drive um, is the is the value that I'm beginning to build because of me, because of the things that I am saying, not my institutional affiliation, mm-hmm. not the people that I worked with from my graduate school and their reputations and their letters of recommendation about whether or not I should have this job that... 500 other people are applying for what I am learning through this whole process. And what I hope that other people learn as they go through this process. And I'm, I'm doing mine in a public way. Um, and you don't have to do yours in a public way, but as long as you're doing it is to really assess why you as a person have value. And if any of those answers involve well, because of this other person or because of this thing, um, like this, this university, then it's going to be hard to find happiness. But if you really center what 
is valuable, like I am actively learning to do and that I still struggle with um, in, a, in a very real way. Um, that 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 it, it's 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 me. Like my my value is is what I need to establish, not by where I did things, but the fact that I did those things. Like I was saying earlier that academics don't know how to value themselves or the things that they do. In academia, you the only thing that has value is your publication, your dissertation, the thing that you completed. In industry, people don't care about that. They just like, hey, that's cool. That's a dissertation that I will never read and nobody will probably ever read. Um, in academia, all of the things that you do to get that publication is not valued. It is expected that you do it for free and that you grimace through it with a smile while giving credit to people who probably don't deserve credit for the work that they did not do. Those things are the things of value in industry. People don't care that you published a paper. They do care about your writing process. They do care about your research process, the things that you can do, how fast you can accumulate knowledge, how adaptable you are to situations, your ability to go in and to promote yourself and to find funding for yourself. Those are the things that industry finds valuable. Having a PhD is 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 great it's it's a cool thing um but if you cannot explain to someone the value of that phd i i don't know if you deserve that job okay okay this is really really good advice for for people who are in this place, trying to figure it out, trying to make the big pivot into industry. Um, what other advice do you have just based on all these recent conversations that you've been having and your in your weekly episode and your and and your your weekly episodes and the conference that you you had in August? Um, honestly, I, I believe that it is it's it's what it's what has happened here in this moment like in in this podcast there i mean there there's at one point um where you said i was helping people through isolation um when when you had not realized that my narrative that my story about what was happening was that i was feeling so isolated mm. um the number one thing that you can and should do is talk to someone is to connect with people. Amen. And the reason that, yeah, and amen. And the, and the reason that you should do that, and this, again, this goes back to Adriana Cavarero, right? And the, and the, and the, we are called into being um, by the, by the voice because we, we hear those unrepeatable, um, unique stories. Um, and she writes in, in one of her books about narrative. She says, um, there is, and this is paraphrasing, there is immense value and meaning in hearing your own story told to you by someone else. Oh God, absolutely. Um, I love that. Yeah. Like we, we all hear that you establish value through story. Um, it's really hard to see your own value in your own story. And so talk to someone who knows you 
and say and ask them the explicit question hey why do you think i'm would be a good hire mm-hmm. like what do i do that's good um talk to people who you don't know um who people who are you're interested in like do informational interviews i love talking to people i don't know i've probably had now um, now that it's in october like since may i've probably held over 120 130 informational interviews, unique informational interviews. That's not counting repeat ones. Um, and what ends up happening is that it's this reciprocated effect that I come up to someone and say, I want to talk to you because I think you're doing this beautiful thing. And they get to hear their own story coming from me. Um, and then in turn, when they get to know me, they help me hear my story back to me. And then I can be able, I can use that and I can refine those things more and more. And then you can start asking questions like, okay, well, if someone says I'm doing good at this, this, and this, and this, how would someone in this other industry that I want to go into, how would they talk about it? Because at the other end is someone who's going to hear a story. They want to hear your story in their language. And you can't do that if you can't even talk about your own story in your own language. I hear you saying something that I keep thinking about. And that is when you go into informational interviews or or do the networking thing in some way, often people you know, freak out and they, they cannot, you know, press the send button on the email to connect with the person. Like they just, they freak out about it. Like I can't possibly do this. Or, um, it's just a scare. Like the whole thing is super scary. Um, and so I hear you saying, you know, don't focus on you. Don't focus on, um, saying the right things and doing the right things and making the right arguments, focus on connecting to that person and connecting to that moment. It, is that true? Would you say that's what you're saying? Or would you say there, there's something more to it? Or well, am I no, capturing I think, that? I think what you said is, is beautiful, is so beautiful. Like at the, at the end, you said like to understand like that it's not about you, um, like make it about this moment and make it about them. And again, I, I mean, I love Adriana Caro's work. She believes that we are each unique and unrepeatable. And this dips into Levinas that when we approach someone, it is actually unethical to act on precedent because everybody is unique and everybody is an individual. Um, or is unrepeatable, no situation is repeatable. And so treat that moment exactly for what it is, an unrepeatable, unique moment with another unrepeatable, unique human being and build a connection that will become unrepeatable and unique. And don't do it to get a job don't do it um, to, to try to get something for yourself. I mean, that can be a reason, but it cannot be your drive. Otherwise, people will feel the inauthenticity. Um, I've had conversations with people who I, get to, I could tell 
that they they had an agenda. Um, I still spoke with them. I was still kind to them. Um, but I remembered that. And I think one of the reasons why people continue to want to, to talk to me is because I because I approach it with this like here we are in this moment together. What can we build? Like how can we help each other? Um, and so when when you go out and when you do make those informational interviews, it's it's not about you. Um, don't try to come up with a script and stick to a script. Don't try to just regurgitate your resume. Ask them questions. Ask them to tell you their story and let them know that you are also in your own story and that you're trying to grow. And people, I believe this, are good. They, they want to be good. And if they have an opportunity to do that, and if you make and you are respectful of their time, then they'll want to talk to you again. This is so good. One of the things I'm thinking about, I mean, it's just so useful in terms of letting go of that mindset that networking is about, you know, just plowing through and, and you know, paving your own path and using other people to do it. Um, and, and when you think of it as just these unique and unrepeatable connections with people that takes all the pressure off. And that then feels like then when you go in with a mindset like that, that you can connect to anyone. And I'm thinking as you have these unique and unrepeatable moments over and over and over again, you just at some point create right? A unique and unrepeatable career path that is unique to you and that feeds you and feels like your calling. Um, that's my two cents at the end of this. Do you want to say anything else to end? No, I, I love, I love where you took that um, from unique and unrepeatable individuals to unique, unrepeatable moments. To, and this is something that I, I will support wholeheartedly, a unique, unrepeatable career path. Um, I, I love that. Awesome. Hey, Eric, thank you so much for having this conversation today. It was such a pleasure. Yeah, thank you for having me. I, I really enjoyed it. And I really appreciate the, the work that you're doing and the platform that you've built um, and the, the authenticity. Um, and I... I appreciate being able to be here and, and to share mine as well. Thank you. Thanks for joining me today on Self-Compassionate Professor. I'm Danielle Delamar, wishing you a wonderful day and much happiness, health, and peace. Take care.